cable or satellite provider. Afterwards is next on Book TV with Senator Mitch McConnell, who talks about his life in politics with Senator Lamar Alexander. Well, this is a book about a shy boy who uh, grew up in Alabama, overcame polio, was inspired by Henry Clay at the University of Louisville to become a senator, did, and then set out to become the majority leader of the United States Senate and did. But Mitch, I have a confession to make. When I was asked to do this, here was what I thought. How can anyone get Mitch McConnell to talk for an hour? (laughs) Because in your own book, I mean, you point out that uh, you only speak to the press uh, when it's to your advantage. Um, you talk about a time when Bill Gates came in to see you and the two of you just sat there and people were uncomfortable waiting for one of you to speak. And you recount that someone once told President George W. Bush that you were excited over a certain vote. And he said, really, how can you tell? So why so few words? Well, I'm not afraid of talking, but I found I learn a lot more by listening. And um, so frequently I start out listening and uh, think about what I want to say before I do it. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that uh, I'm uh, in the era of Trump, uh, probably very different in my approach to uh, commenting on uh, public affairs. Well, you're not the first one. I remember the late Bob Novak used to say that the hardest interview he ever had on Meet the Press was with Senator Mike Mansfield because he'd ask him a question, he'd say, yep. And he'd ask him another one, he'd say, nope, and he'd run out of questions. And the <laughs> easiest one was Hubert Humphrey. One question, and he'd talk for 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, I think you don't, you don't get in trouble for what you don't say. And I think there's nothing wrong with, um, with being um, cautious about your, your comments. Um, I certainly don't mind talking, but I usually like to uh, know what I'm talking about uh, before I venture down that path. Well, you're not so cautious in your book. I mean, there's a lot of unexpected material in there. I mean, there's the polio. We'll talk about that. Your fist fight with Dickie McGrew. Mm-hmm. Um, your vote for Lyndon Johnson in 1964. Yeah over civil rights, and then uh, when it gets to Professor Obama and uh, Senator Harry Reid, your Democratic counterpart, and and the Senate Conservative Fund, you don't hold back there. And then I think most people would be surprised to learn that you're an all-American tailgater at the University of Louisville, and we'll talk about that. But yeah. why don't we start with polio? Yeah. It's 1944. You're two years old. You're living with your mom in Five Points, Alabama, and the doctor, your dad's overseas in the war. And, and the doctor says, Mitch has polio. It's hard today to imagine how terrifying those words must have been for parents then. Absolutely. And I subsequently learned that there was a serious epidemic in 1944 all over the country. Um, and the, the disease is very, very um, unpredictable. Some people, you, first you'd, you'd have a, the flu. You would think you had the flu. Mm-hmm. And... A couple of weeks later, some people would be completely normal. A couple of weeks later, some people would be in an iron lung Mm -hmm. or dead. Um, In my case, it affected my left quadricep, the the muscle between your knee and your thigh. And um, in one of the great good fortunes of my life, this little crossroads, Five Points, Alabama, there was not even a stoplight there. 
where my mother, as you indicated, was living with her sister while my dad was overseas fighting the Germans, happened to be 60 miles from Warm Springs. And Roosevelt, having gone there himself in the 20s, trying to... Because he had polio he from, did. From, as an com- adult. Completely, um, he got it at age 39, completely paralyzed below the waist. Um, but your mother had no way of knowing if you might be like the president, completely paralyzed. Well, not completely. But what they predicted, the worst case scenario for me would have been a, a brace on my left leg. And so I didn't have as severe a case as President Roosevelt had. But the key for, you know, imagine I'm two years old. <laughs> you know what two years old yeah. kids are like. Uh, my mother took me over to Warm Springs. They, t- they taught her a physical therapy regimen and told her to administer it four, days, uh, four times uh, a day and to keep me off my feet. So she literally watched me like a hawk for two years, every waking moment and tried to convey to me the subtle message. They didn't want me to think I couldn't walk, but I shouldn't walk. A very subtle message. And how do you keep a two-year-old from walking? She watched me every... I mean, that's what two-year-olds do. Yeah, she watched me <laughs> every minute and prevented me from prematurely walking. That all she, that's Obviously, she told me that years later. My first memory in life was the last visit to Warm Springs, where they told my mother I was going to be okay that I'd be able to walk without a limp. And we stopped in a shoe store in LaGrange, Georgia, on the way back to the Alabama uh, to get a pair of low-top shoes, which were kind of a symbol that I was going to have a normal childhood. And I did have a normal childhood. And how old were you? Four by that point. Yeah. This went on for two years. She watched me like a hawk. Yeah, that's hard to admit. What, what an, uh, an amazing thing. Do you, you, you've got a chapter in your book called Resilience. I guess mm. resilience must come from that to some extent. Well, you know, if if impressions being made on us at that really early age are as significant as some people think, it sure had to have one on me, which was, you know, if you stick to something, you keep working at it and giving it your best, the chances are you may actually overcome whatever problem you're currently Do you have any impediment today? Some, yeah. I, I uh, the, the quadricep, for example, is more important going downstairs than up. So I, I'm I'm not great at going downstairs, but I've had a perfectly normal life. Uh, when I was a kid, I wasn't good at running long distances, but I could play baseball, a sport mm-hmm. that you know doesn't have the kind of back and forth like basketball does. Well, let's move on to Dickie McGrew. Your father yeah. <laughs> encouraged you to have a fist fight with Dickie McGrew. What was that about? Well, he didn't encourage me. He didn't, I had no choice. I, this was a situation, I was about seven. We lived in Athens, Alabama, and I had a friend across the street named Dickie McGrew, who was a year older than I was and considerably bigger. He was also a bully, and he kept kind of pushing me around. And my dad was out working in the yard one day, and he saw that. Again, he had seen it before. He called me over, and uh, he said, son, I, I've been watching the way he's been pushing you around. I want you to go over there, and I want you to beat him up. And I said, dad, he's older than I am and bigger than I am. And he, dad said, I'm older than he is and bigger than he is. So given this, what some would say, Hobson's choice, I chose Dickie. I went across the street and started swinging, and I beat him up and bent his glasses. It was an incredible lesson in standing up to bullies, and I've thought about that throughout my life at critical moments when you're, people are trying to push you around. Yeah, so you've got a chapter standing your ground. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, let's jump ahead to Kentucky, the, the, the uh, University of Louisville. You know, people looking at C-SPAN might wonder, what do those senators talk about when they're on the floor? Well, they're watching you. The odds are you're talking about the University of Louisville sports program. Um, before I get to that, though, you, you, your honors thesis was Henry Clay, Senator Henry Clay. And, and that the inspired of 1850. You, yeah, that inspired you to, to want to be a United States senator? Well, I had gotten interested in politics in school. I ran for president of the student uh, body in high school, and it was a big high school, a lot of very contentious race. And You said you were hooked. I won. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I began to follow politics. Um, I remember at age 14, uh, when, when the conventions were really, the coverage of conventions was really dull. They'd focus on the podium uh, and listen to all the speeches on TV. Yeah, or or I, we used to, there was a big Zenith radio, and we sit there and li- listen to the whole thing on yeah. the Zenith radio. Yeah, pretty boring. I don't know. You may have been doing this, too, but I, was, I thought I was probably the only 14-year-old well, American. Well, there might have been two. <laughs> <laughs> only 14-year-old America, I thought. Maybe you were watching, too. Uh, watching those things from, from gavel to gavel. So I began to uh, to try to practice this craft and see if I could get good at it. And um, I, I was, you know, ran for president student council in college, too, and in law school. And Clay was the most famous politician in Kentucky. Yeah, wh- what like about Andrew Clay, Jackson, what, what about Clay inspired you most? Well, I mean, the fact that he, you know, in a not terribly uh, significant state, some would argue, had become uh, a major statesman was why in Kentucky people focused on Clay, so I, I wanted to learn more about him. And so... Uh, but he, he was known for crafting compromises, compromises which yeah. is a dirty word today with some people. It is, but absolutely essential. That's what the Constitution's full of compromises. And you and I in our daily lives do it every single day in order to make the Senate uh, function. So I, I did my senior thesis on Henry Clay and the Compromise of 1850. And... Um, continued to follow him, as a lot of aspiring Kentucky politicians do. Mm-hmm. Now, there was another aspect, the University of Louisville, and uh, that that's just athletic programs. D- describe your tailgating schedule. Well, football is is an important part of life. Yeah, but you take it pretty seriously. I do. We, we, I, have a, I buy 12 season tickets every year. I have some regulars, one of whom goes back to college, and we go to every home game. And an occasional away game. And we make a day of it. We go out early. Uh, one of my friends has an RV <laughs> in the parking lot and um, talk about what will happen in the game. And then we go to the game and then we talk about what did happen in the game. And it's a, it's a complete uh, a lengthy exercise and one of the great joys of life. Let's jump ahead a little bit. We're talking about the early 1960s when you were at the University of Louisville. Uh, you and I both drove to Washington. We just re- each realized in a green Mustang yeah. <laughs> toward the end of the 1960s. And I, I can you you to work for Senator Marlo Cook from Kentucky. I to work for Senator Howard Baker. And I can remember in 1969, Senator Baker saying to me, "You need to go over and meet that smart young legislative aide from Marlo Cook, Mitch McConnell." But now let's go back to Louisville. In Louisville. You, you led a march or a part of a march on the Capitol about civil rights. 
you uh, you were in Washington as I was to hear Martin Luther King's speech in August of 1963, the I Have a Dream speech. You had had Goldwater come speak to University of Louisville because you're president of the College Republicans, but you voted for Lyndon Johnson in 1964. What happened? Well, in our generation, I think the Civil Rights Movement was the defining issue of our generation. Mm -hmm. And in 62, I had been fortunate enough when I was college Republican president, Goldwater accepted an invitation to come to U of L. It was terrific. Then in 63, the summer of 63, people like you and myself got to see uh, the I Have a Dream speech. And then in 64, I was an intern in Senator Cooper's office. Two important things happened in 64. We broke the filibuster of the Civil Rights Bill, and Senator Cooper was in the middle of breaking the filibuster. And we nominated Barry Goldwater, one of the few people who voted against the Civil Rights Bill. Honestly, I was mad as hell about it. And I was so irritated about Goldwater voting against the Civil Rights Bill and kind of defining uh, the Republican Party in a way that I thought would be unfortunate that I voted for Lyndon Johnson, which in retrospect was a huge mistake. <laughs> but I w- it was a protest, uh, protest vote. And um, Well, that feeling carried over into your Senate days. You, you voted when, when President Reagan vetoed the sanctions on, on South Africa for apartheid, you voted not to override his veto. No, I voted to override. I mean, you voted to override yeah, his veto, I did, I did which vote. most Republicans did not do. Right. I, I just felt like um, Reagan, who was, who was widely admired by people like you and me, uh, was simply wrong about whether or not uh, South Africa sanctions could work. And I know there are people who think that sanctions never work. Occasionally they do. They worked in South Africa. They worked in Burma a number of years later. And um, I, I thought Reagan was wrong, and I, I did vote to override his veto. Well, you mentioned Burma. Talk about how how did you get interested in Aung San Suu Kyi, the, who, who who has fought? That was a pretty extraordinary thing that lasted over 20 years. You, I, I remember watching you stand up and make speeches on the Senate floor. I really wondered what you were doing. Yeah, well, I started following her after she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 91. And for the listeners who are not familiar with her, she... she um, her father was sort of the founder of modern Burma, but he didn't live very long. He got assassinated. Uh, she went off to, to uh, Europe, went to school, lived in the United States for a while, married a guy from Britain, had two sons from England, had gone back to Burma in 1988 to care for her sick mother when this movement started. And she was sort of thrust into the leadership uh, mm-hmm. The military junta, which had run the country since the early 60s, decided to have a free and fair election. They got creamed. And uh, their reaction to getting creamed in the free and fair election was to arrest all the people who'd gotten elected and put her under house arrest in her own house, where she remained most of the time for 21 years. So we would slip notes to each other over the years. And I authored, along with some others, uh, Burma sanctions bills that actually ultimately made a difference. and um, You visited her, did you not, mm-hmm. not long ago? Well, you know, after, amazingly enough, the regime began to crumble mm-hmm. in um, 2011. And uh, so then we were able to talk on the phone. 
and I actually went to Burma in January of 2012 and uh, got to see her in person, <laughs> invited her to come to the University of Louisville to the McConnell Center later that year, and she did come in September of 2012. And now she's the de facto elected leadership leader of uh, the country, even though the Constitution <laughs> pro- prohibits anyone from who's married to a foreigner who has been married to a foreigner to be president, put in the Constitution exactly to keep her from being president. Uh, she's the de facto president. She's put in a president who's a close ally. You, you, you mentioned the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. What does that do? Well, it's, a, uh, it, it's basically a scholarship program for the best and brightest uh, kids uh, that I started about 25 years ago. They're, you have to be from Kentucky, and there are 10 each year. 10 freshmen, 10 sophomores, 10 juniors, 10 seniors. And uh, so we're, it's designed to try to, do, to, to compete with Ivy League schools and to get sharper kids to stay in Kentucky for education, believing that if they stay there, they're more likely to <laughs> stay there after school. 70% of the graduates have chosen to stay in Kentucky, where most of the sharp kids who go off to the east uh, to school never come back. What I do is bring in speakers. And we've had some great ones over the years. Um, Hillary Clinton was there while she was Secretary of State, and Joe Biden's been there while he was Vice President. Chief Justice Roberts has been there, and it's a treat not only for the 40 who get to meet privately with whoever the speaker is, but then they address a larger public audience while they're there. Let's switch to politics, a subject you like you like to discuss and, and something you're pretty good at. You're undefeated. You've won six races in Kentucky, 12 really, counting, counting primaries. Let's talk about the first one, the Bloodhound commercial. You were, you, you were well, well all, I think all of us in the United States Senate are political accidents. Not all yeah. of us will admit it, but we yeah, all are. Sure. And you surely were. Yeah. You were 30 points behind. In very, July. In of July. the election year. So the Bloodhound ad, what was that? Well, it was a desperate situation. <laughs> uh, Roger Ailes, who's now pretty well known in the country. How'd you find Roger Ailes? I was well, wondering he, in those days, he was doing a political consulting, doing commercials. So he was willing to take on somebody in a Democratic state who was 30 points behind? Well, he had a couple of clients he thought were going to win that year, and me, <laughs> and me. And uh, I appreciated the fact he was willing to take me on. But, I mean, he, this is a tough competitor. You can see how he started CNBC for NBC and started Fox for Rupert Murdoch. Um Here's the situation. It was it was July of the election. I was down... 1984. 1984. I was down 34 points. We had a, a meeting in Louisville. And I said, Roger, is this race over? And here's what he said. He said, I've never known anybody come from this far behind this late to win, but I don't think it's over. A very competitive guy. I was running against a pretty smart Democratic incumbent who didn't have a lot of obvious vulnerabilities. We were looking for some kind of issue, that a needle in the haystack, if you will. And it turned out, this was back in the honoraria days, which I didn't have any problem with people making speeches for money, but he had been making speeches for money while he was missing votes on the Senate floor. So Ailes turned that in to uh, a couple of ads featuring a Kentucky hunter-type person with bloodhounds out looking for Huddleston to get him back to work. 
and it electrified the campaign, got people interested in it, got people talking about it. And then there was a sequel later in which we had a guy who looked like Huddleston, an actor, who was being chased by the dogs and who literally ended up up in a tree. And it, <laughs> the, we, we, and, the, and the key line there was, we got you now, D. Huddleston. They had treated him right at the end. Not exactly a landslide, one voter precinct. Yeah, four-tenths of one percent. Yeah, yeah. but the other way of looking at it, even though Reagan carried 49 out of 50 states, we lost two seats in the Senate. And he was the only Democratic incumbent senator in the whole country that year to lose. So. I think your Democratic opponents the next five times would say that probably defined your method of campaigning, which is to <laughs> smash, smash them in the mouth before they get started. Yeah. Uh, probably, and I'm just guessing, your toughest campaign other than that was the last one, 2014, because you had the yeah. Senate Conservatives Fund coming at yeah. you from the right. You had Harry Reid coming at you from the left. Yeah. And, um, and it was a pretty big brawl but you started right out by by an ad that called your republican opponent now the governor of kentucky i think bail out bevin yeah well i mean you and i witnessed the results in 2010 and 2012 i was glad all the attention was on you (laughs) (laughs) the uh, the senate conservatives fund and its allies had basically cost us five races in 2010 and 2012 by nominating people who couldn't win. And so at the beginning of 2014, I said, not only in in my own race, but in other races, we're not going to allow that to happen anymore. And so what we did, not only in my race, but in other races around the country, we got the most electable people nominated. We basically took them on. Because if you're dealing with a group of people who think compromise is a dirty word, and who always want to make a point but never want to make a difference, the only thing to do if you want to win the election is to beat them. And so we won every primary, including my own. And I was, as you indicated, my primary opponent was a pretty credible guy. The next year he got elected governor of Kentucky. But in my primary, he carried two out of 120 counties. Yeah, you say take them on. It's kind of like your fist fight with Dickie McGrew. This is the only thing I'm going to read out of your book. (laughs) But one of your top aides, Josh Holmes, said this in 2013. The Senate Conservatives Fund has been wandering around the country, destroying the Republican Party like a drunk who tears up every bar they walk in. The difference this cycle is that if they stroll into Mitch McConnell's barn, he's not going to throw you out. He's going to lock the door. Those are pretty fighting words. Yeah, I think that's what needed to be done. And as a result, if you look at 2014, Lamar, as a result of that approach, not only in my race, but in several others... (laughs) We took the Senate back. We, we had the most electable candidates on the November ballot everywhere. Let's cross the aisle and talk about uh, the Senate Democratic leader, Harry Reid. You and I were at Senator Bob Bennett's funeral a few days ago, and you and Senator Reid both spoke. And he said what I've often heard both of you say, that mm-hmm. people think Mitch McConnell and I don't like each other, but we're good friends. And you say in your book you're friends with Harry Reid. But then you say he's got a Jekyll and Hyde personality. When Reed hears that, he says you're classless and that you, like Donald Trump, think women are dogs and pigs. Uh, You say, not in your book, but I think you've said other places that he may be the worst majority leader. So the Senate is a place of relationships. What about this relationship between the Democratic and Republican leader? Are you friends or are you not friends? Well, look, I, you know, I, I've been very, very public about 
a couple of things about Harry. And number one, I didn't like the way he shut the Senate down and prevented people from voting. I didn't like the way he ran the Senate. And I think his public rhetoric is frequently very inappropriate. Um, so I don't think there's like a, Like what? Well, the, the example you just mentioned, just a few weeks before we're taping this, he took all of Donald Trump's uh, most outrageous comments and attributed them to me. Well, I, I don't do that to him. So I don't think there's an equivalence here. But nevertheless, I think to a lot of people, it looks like we're just feuding all the time. Um, we, we aren't feuding all the time. We have to talk on a daily basis. I do vehemently object to the way he ran the Senate. And my goal in this current majority is to be as different in every way from Harry and the way he ran the previous majority. In other words, I'm trying to do everything totally different. So I do object to the way he ran the Senate. And I do object to this inflammatory rhetoric, like calling Alan Greenspan uh, a political hack. Alan Greenspan may be many things, but a political hack he certainly isn't. Or calling George W. Bush a loser, or saying the Iraq war is lost right in the middle of a major military exercise there. So I, I can't fail to express my objection to, to that kind of rhetoric, which is frequently flat out wrong. Let's take one other person. You you talk about the Senate Conservative Funds. You write about uh, Senator Reid. You have a chapter entitled Professor Obama. Why'd you, why'd you choose those words? The president is a very smart guy. Um, I think he knows a lot about a lot of things. I think he would do a better job of dealing with others if he would spend <laughs> less time trying to acquaint whoever he's talking to at the moment with his brilliance and more time listening. Just to draw a contrast between the president and the vice president, I've been in a number of uh, major deals with the vice president that were important and worth doing for the country. He doesn't spend any time trying to convince me of things he knows I don't believe, and I don't spend any time trying to convince him of things that he doesn't believe. In other words, you don't waste any time on all of that. We get down to trying to figure out what we can do together because he knows how far I can go and I know how far he can go. I think the president would be better off. He's a brilliant guy. He's been a successful uh, in his political career and rising quickly to the to the top in American politics. Uh, but I don't think um, these sort of incessant lectures are, are very helpful in getting an outcome if you're in some kind of negotiation. Well, let's talk about divided government for a minute. I've heard you talk about that a lot and say, express your disappointment uh, that you and the president haven't been able to accomplish more together because I've heard you say that divided government is the time when you do hard things because you spread the responsibility around. Now, the Democrats say about you that you said early on that your main goal was to make President Obama a one-term president. I've heard you say that you made a speech early on. It's time to go to work on entitlements and offer uh, offer a hand to, to do that. And you never heard back from anybody. So... Whose fault is it that we haven't taken advantage of this seven years of divided government to do more together? Well, obviously, I have a point of view on that. 
On the Obama one-term president, I do admire Bob Woodward, who is the only major reporter in town who reported the rest of what I said right after that. Which was? Which was that in the meantime, we had plenty of work to do, and we had to look for ways we could work together. That was conveniently snipped off by almost everyone. But um, I, I think divided government is probably the only time you can do big, transformative things. I'll give you a four example. Reagan and Tip O'Neill raised the age for Social Security. Reagan and Tip O'Neill did the last comprehensive tax reform. Bill Clinton and a Republican Congress did welfare reform and actually balanced the budget three years in a row. Big stuff. Arguably, none of that could have been done in unified government. Let me give you an example of when unified government couldn't produce a big outcome. George W. Bush has just been reelected in 2004. He asked all of us to tackle Social Security. I was number two in our conference at that time, and I spent a year trying to get any Democrat, any Democrat, even Joe Lieberman, the most reasonable Democrat, to join with us. And their attitude was, you have the White House, you have the House, you have the Senate. You want to do something on Social Security, you do it. What that means is we'll see you in the next election. So my big disappointment with Barack Obama is there are two things that have to be done to save America from the path that we're headed. Entitlement eligibility changes. In other words, you have to change the eligibility for very popular things like Medicare and Social Security to fit the demographics of America tomorrow. Not America in the 30s, not America in the 60s. Social Security in the 30s, Medicare in the 60s. The president knows that. He's a very smart guy. He doesn't want to do it. Comprehensive tax reform. It's been 30 years. We need to do it again. It's not for the purpose of getting more revenue for the government. It's for the purpose of making America more competitive. But the president won't do comprehensive tax reform in any other way other than to try to get additional revenue for the government. So these two big transformative issues we have been unable to address because the nation's CEO simply doesn't want to do it. Well, I suppose maybe the best example of when we did do that was in civil rights in the 60s, and we both both saw that. I remember when I first came up here working for Senator Baker, Everett Dirksen was the Republican leader. Mm -hmm. He has the office you now have. And for days, around a big table there, senators came in and out as Democrats and Republicans worked together to see if they could get enough votes to get 67, which is what it then took to end debate or, or cloture. And they did that, and Johnson and Dirksen did that together because of their very special relationship. And you have in your book a story, uh, Senator John Sherman Cooper took you as a youngster to the signing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and you had a conversation with President Johnson's daughter, Lucy. Yeah, I saw Lucy in 2008. I'd never met her at a celebration of her dad's 100th birthday. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, Lucy, we've never met, but I was in this very room, the Statuary Hall, when your dad signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. She said, I was too. And I said, I'm sure everybody knew you were there, and nobody knew I was. I was in the back of the room. And um, she said, I'll tell you why I was there. She said, my daddy said to me, get in the car. I'm going to take you down to witness something important. 
and explained to me on the way down to the hill why Everett Dirksen was going to be prominently featured in his remarks. And the reason, and she said, well, why would you have a Republican there? And she said, uh, President Johnson said to her, not only did most of the Republicans vote for it, but the nation will be more likely to accept it if they think we have done this together. Lucy Johnson in 2008, explaining why she was there in 1965. And of course they had, to do that, they had a relationship. Senator Baker used to tell me about the time that he heard his father-in-law, Dirksen, take a phone call in his office, and he heard Dirksen say, no, Mr. President, I can't come down and have a drink with you tonight. I did that last night, and Luella's mad at me. And about 30 minutes later, there was a rustle outside, and two beagles came in, followed by a president of the United States. And <laughs> Lyndon Johnson said, uh, Everett, if you won't come down and have a drink with me, I'm here to have one with you. And they disappeared into the back room of the same office where the Civil Rights Bill yeah. of 1968 was written. So that, was, yeah. that, that, that relationship precedes, probably, divided government. Let, let's talk about the Senate as an institution a little bit. You alluded to it earlier you said your main goal is to restore the Senate as an institution. You're something of a historian. You thought about getting your Ph.D. in history at one time. And you went onto the floor before you were majority leader and said you wanted to run the Senate the way Senator Mike Mansfield ran it, yeah. who was the majority leader 16 years at the time you and I both came here. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that was, and we, we were talking about this earlier, my, my critique of, of Harry Reid's uh, period as majority leader, First of all, you have to open the Senate up. The last year of the previous majority, there were only 15 roll call votes on amendments the entire year. The first year of the new majority, in 2015, we had over 200. So you open the Senate up. Let people vote. Number two, it, when we talk about regular order, which most people don't know what that means. Uh, glazes the eyes right yeah, there. You it means, lost 15 it means viewers. <laughs> it means the bill's actually worked on together, yeah. comes out to the floor with bipartisan support, and has a better chance of success. The best example I can think of that happens to be your bill to completely rewrite the so-called No Child Left Behind bill passed in the early Bush 43 years, which proved to be unworkable and unpopular. And by the time you brought it out of committee, you had the Democrats and the Republicans lined up you took it to the floor. It was relatively open for amendments, not that absolutely everybody got everything they wanted. And in the end, it passed with a very large majority. We have done that time after time after time under this new majority, whether it was Trade Promotion Authority or a five-year highway bill, which most people would think would be easy. We hadn't done that in 20 years. Comprehensive energy bills, cybersecurity, uh, permanent Internet tax moratorium, um, a major opioid and heroin addiction uh, bill. We're hoping to achieve something really important again coming out of your committee related to some of the incredible cures that seem to be just around the corner for our country. Now, what does all this have in common? In a time of divided government, we're focusing on the things that we can agree on mm -hmm. and do those. Because when people elect divided government, I think what they're saying is, we know you have big differences, but why don't you look for the things you agree on and do those? 
And that's how this majority is totally different from the previous one. Yeah, and it's important to say, and I've heard you say it, but you, you have to do, as Johnson did to Dirksen, give the other side credit. I mean, in my case, with fixing No Child Left Behind, that never would have happened if Senator Patty Murray of, right. of Washington, the leading Democrat, hadn't been as interested in a result as I have, and our, and our bill on biomedical research won't. But it's never, you know, it's not a bad thing to give somebody else yeah. credit. Usually, usually it helps you get the, where you want to go. You, you came here 50 years ago. Uh, working for, or a little more than that, working for Senator Cooper. What's the most different about the Senate today, and what's something that's the same? Well, I think what's different is the two-party labels really sort of mean something today. When you and I first came to Washington, there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. I think the two-party labels today are more descriptive of America's two-party system. The Republicans are mostly all right to center, right of center, and the Democrats are mostly all left of center. So I think the labels mean more today than they did then. That's different. Uh, what I think isn't different is that there, there isn't as much animosity or unwillingness to work together as is portrayed uh, in, the, in the media. With the internet and 24-hour cable television going on, people get hammered with what they teach them in journalism school, that only bad news and conflict is news. So people are way more upset about the process than they ought to be. They are legitimately upset about where they are in their lives. And it's a fact that the average American is three or $4,000 a year worse off <laughs> today than they were, for example, when President Obama came to office. So that's a legitimate complaint. But the, the, the Senate is not dysfunctional. It used to be, but it's not anymore. And one of my great frustrations is that not many people know that. <laughs> no, that we, 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 we've talked about. If, if I remember when I came to the Senate as a senator, having worked in it before, I thought I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't realize what it was like to work in a body that operates by unanimous consent. I mean, most people yeah. don't realize you're the majority leader. But when if they'll listen carefully on C-SPAN, <laughs> you'll stand up at the end of the day and say, I ask consent that the Senate open tomorrow at 930 and that we have a prayer and that we go to this bill. And if one senator objects, one senator objects, you have to start, you, you have to start over. How would you, if you had to suggest to someone a book to read, um, about understanding the Senate. Do, do one or two come to mind? Oh, my goodness. It probably put people to sleep because the Senate is ironically working out pretty much the way George Washington predicted. According to legend, he was asked when he presided over the Constitutional Convention, <laughs> what do you think the Senate will be like? He said he thought it would be like the saucer under the teacup and the tea would slosh out of the cup down to the saucer and cool off. Why did he say that? Senators until 100 years ago were not popularly elected. They were elected by the state legislatures. And only a third of the Senate was up every two years. So I think on purpose, the founders wanted the Senate to be a place where the breaks could be applied pretty easily. And then over, uh, over the years, as you suggest, the notion of unlimited debate 
uh, empowered every single senator to have an impact. If the House is like a triangle with the Speaker at the top, the Senate's more like a level playing field with the majority leader having the right of first recognition. But after that, it's pretty much a jump ball. So stepping back from all the minutia, what should people take away about the Senate? The Senate is a place where things slow down or thought over and rarely done on a strictly partisan basis unless you have a huge number of your party. I think the first chapter of Robert Caro's book about Lyndon Johnson, the I think it's Master of Deceit, or Master, uh, Master of, the of the Senate, maybe Master of Deceit too, but <laughs> but uh, it's called The Desks of the Senate. That struck me as when after the election, the engineers come in, and if the Democrats have won more than the Republicans, they unbolt the Republican desks and move enough over to the other side to even it out. That's, a, that's a, to me, a wonderful way to begin to think about the way the place works. Let me let me switch gears completely. You you were married, had three daughters, divorced while you were uh, mayor of mayor of Jefferson County, which is which is Louisville. You were a bachelor for thirteen years, and then at the suggestion of a friend. Uh, you had your assistant telephone the assistant for the <laughs> chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission, yeah. and that was how you met yeah. Elaine Chow, who you've now married. That wasn't a very romantic beginning, <laughs> doesn't sound to me I don't like. know. What, <laughs> you know, um, I, call, I, I had befriended a couple of people when I was a staffer uh, in the Senate and kept up with them over the years that I went home to try to have my own career. And I, I, I had, as you indicated, been 13 single for quite a while. I was single when I came to the Senate. And I wanted to meet somebody new. So I called up Julia Chang Block, who was uh, this friend from a long time ago, and said, do you know anybody new? And she said, I've got the woman you ought to meet. And that was Elaine Chow, whose uh, you know, family is a classic example of why we never want to totally curtail immigration in this country. Well, tell something about her family's story. I mean, it yeah. is a remarkable story. It is. Her mom, her mom and dad, born in mainland China, when they were young, they were dodging the Japanese invasion of China. Then when they got to be a little bit older, there was the communist revolution. Mm-hmm. They separately managed to get out of mainland China and go to Taiwan. And they had met briefly on the mainland, and my father-in-law had taken a liking to her, so he searched in Taiwan for two years to find her. They got married, had three daughters over there. My, my wife, Elaine, is the oldest. But he was an ambitious young man. He wanted to do better. So he came to America for three years by himself, worked multiple jobs trying to get a start in the shipping business. He had been a ship's captain in Taiwan. He wanted to be more than that. And so he, he for three years, worked multiple jobs to get his start he called for my late mother-in-law and the three daughters to come over. They didn't have enough money for an airline ticket. They came over on a freighter. They were the only people other than the crew and the bulk commodity on a big freighter. Finally ended up in a small apartment in Queens. And he kept working and kept having kids. They ended up with six daughters, four of whom have gone to Harvard Business School. One of them is a slackered. He's only a lawyer. <laughs> and um, he built a very successful shipping business. And 
you know, that is the kind of story that you see all across America, which is another reason why even in moments when we're frustrated about our attitudes about illegal immigration, to remember that we were all, virtually all of us, unless we were African Americans who were brought here against our will, the sons and daughters of risk takers. And so this constant renewal process that we have through the people who come here legally with ambition and want to accomplish, you know, tend to be the best Americans. And so I think Elaine and her family are a classic example of that. I want to ask you about some senators, one living, the rest of them deceased. So, but the living one is John McCain. Um, you and he had a big brawl over the, <laughs> over the First Amendment. I think yeah. most people may not know that your First Amendment view had to do with basically no limits on campaign finance disclosure. And you voted against a constitutional amendment that would have banned desecration of the American flag. So you're pretty far out there on the First Amendment. But John McCain disagreed with you. McCain-Feingold was the law that passed. You fought it in the Supreme Court. You lost. Um, That was a pretty acrimonious battle. What's your relationship with John McCain today? Very close. I mean, that's a good example of being able to have, you know, a <laughs> knockdown, drag out a fight over issues that went on for about 10 years. It was really pretty stressful between us at various points. But, um, you know, I called him up the day after he won in the Supreme Court. Actually, one of the worst days of my life actually was watching a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican president pass a bill that I was opposed to. And I uh, deeply opposed to, and I was the plaintiff and lost in the Supreme Court. Called him up the day after, and I said, congratulations, John, you won, I lost. And we found that there were a lot of other things we could work on together, and we become fast friends and allies on a whole variety of different things. And that's the way the Senate ought to work, mm-hmm. and frequently does. I'm not sure many people in the public know that. Do you consider John McCain an American hero? Absolutely. Now, here's some... I, I, I'd like to ask you to give me just one or two sentences about each of the following United States senators, all of them deceased. The first thing that comes to your mind about Henry Clay. Another great compromiser. Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. As a senator? Yeah. Overrated. I think the master of the Senate was Mike Mansfield and not Lyndon Johnson. Well, Mike Mansfield. Master of the Senate. Uh, Everett Dirksen. Uh, the indispensable player who who knew when to oppose and when to uh, to join up in, a, in an unsung hero in the civil rights movement. Senator John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. My uh, role model as a young man. Great conviction. Very smart. Ted Kennedy. Uh, he was a line of the Senate as one of the Many books about him have been written, and he roared. And you and I both knew when he was passionate, which he was about almost everything. But um, in many ways, I think the most accomplished Kennedy. He never got to be president, never was attorney general, but I think in almost every way, the most accomplished Kennedy. Certainly the most accomplished senator as a as a Kennedy and maybe yeah. the most accomplished I you know we we used to laugh with him about going to Lincoln Day dinners and all you had to do was mention Ted Kennedy's name to fire up the <laughs> yeah. crowd 
Yet when I made my first speech on the Senate floor about American history, he came over unsolicited, took my bill, went out and got 20 Democratic co-sponsors within a day. So he knew exactly how to make the Senate work. Senator Robert Byrd. Could well have been Senate historian. Um, during the presidential campaign this year, uh, Governor Christie got all over Senator Rubio for repeating himself during a debate. Now, in your book, you say, when I start boring myself to tears, I know I am beginning to drive the message home. In other words, you think redundancy is a good thing. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, I'm, I'm probably one of the few people in America that thought Rubio was doing the right thing in that debate. <laughs> I, I think, you know, good politics is repetition. And if you're trying to drive a message, you have to repeat it a lot to to make the point. I try to do that in meetings that we have with our colleagues. Uh, well, yeah, I've noticed. One, well, one time is not <laughs> enough, you know. You can always count on about three-fourths not paying attention the first time, so... If, if you're if you're really trying to make a point, repetition is a good thing. I want to ask you about a period of time and your emotions during that time. After three terms, you were finally elected whip, the number two position in the Senate. That was November 13, 2002. Then a month later, Trent Lott went to Strom Thurmond's birthday party and said something about Thurmond, and suddenly he had to resign from as leader, a position you'd always wanted. You would seem to be the logical person to move up, but Senator Bill Frist took the position. And then at the end of January, you had triple bypass surgery. So what was your range of emotions during that two and a half months about all those events? Yeah, I think I think my feeling was that I probably never was going to have an opportunity to be the leader of my party in the Senate because I was 10 years older than Bill Frist. Um, fortunately, the health problem I had worked out fine, uh, but I had doubts during that period, and I had just been bypassed by somebody who was 10 years younger than I am mm-hmm. and had a significant health uh, problem, so I, I, you know, I wondered if I would ever have an opportunity uh, to have the job that I had uh, clearly been hoping to have for, for quite a while. So it was a, a challenging uh, period, but like other challenges I and others have, I don't want to make my story seem all that unique. If you just don't quit and just uh, keep plugging, the chances are, you know, you'll get where you're headed. I mean, I always tell students that I spend a lot of time with, the only way to fail in America is to quit or die, (laughs) you know? And we all have speed bumps. We all have setbacks. Are we defeated by them or do we just shake it off and Keep on going. So I got my second chance. Uh, Bill decided to leave the Senate, and I got to be leader of the party and that, that I wanted to be. But then there was another disappointment. It wasn't the majority leader. It was the minority leader. And you gave the blame for some of that to Republican on Republican violence. You talk in your book quite a bit about that, about uh, the politics of futile, futile gesture. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, it'd be something like, uh, why don't we shut down the government to defund Obamacare? That's a futile gesture. Um, Obama's in the White House. Obviously, Obama's not going to 
not going to sign such a bill. The, the, the politics of feudal gesture is a way of describing um, tactical maneuvers that have no chance of success that only divide the party. And that has been a challenge. I think it's been a bigger challenge in the House of Representatives than it has been in the Senate. There are only a couple of people in the Senate who have that kind of approach. Um, <laughs> but it's been a challenge. And on, and on the outside, you saw it with the actions of the Senate Conservatives Fund. Now, the way, the way we've dealt with that on the outside is to beat them. You just simply defeat them in the primaries. And then you don't have a nominee who comes into the Senate, who, first of all, who wins. And second, who comes into the Senate with that kind of mentality, thinking that our job is only to throw stones every day and to never achieve anything. Well, of course, one of the disadvantages of it is that uh, the message that you'd like to deliver, which is that the Republican majority is accomplishing a lot, uh, gets diluted because you have some Republicans going around and say it's not, and even presidential candidates saying it's not, which makes it harder to, to elect a Republican president and yeah. to keep a Republican majority. And it's not just about messaging. I mean, we all, you know, we all want to do things for our country. I mean, I, no matter what our backgrounds are, I think virtually every, not everybody, but virtually everybody comes here wanting to actually accomplish things for our country. <clears throat> and you have to deal with it with the government you have. You know, Barack Obama, whether I like it or not, got elected. He'd been there for eight years. And to suggest that... We ought to spend 100% of our time simply fighting with him <coughs> rather than trying to look for some of the things that we can agree on that would make progress for the country always struck me as absurd. Why did you decide to write the book now? Well, I think it was becoming majority leader after all these years. You know, I called it the long game. It didn't happen overnight. I was certainly not an overnight sensation. <laughs> and I thought um, it was a time in which the Senate needed to be operated differently, that it was a, uh, a pivot point uh, for the Senate. And I think that's the reason why I chose this particular time. If there were one law, if you were the king and there were one law that you could pass, uh, what would it be? I think I would fix the uh, entitlement eligibility problem. I think the, the one issue that can sink the country is the unsustainable uh, current craft, uh, the, 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 the way Medicare and Social Security are currently crafted is unsustainable. It's the one thing that could completely tank our country. Senators have a weekly prayer breakfast on Wednesday, and we don't talk about that much, but Tom Daschle, who had your job before the former majority leader, said something that stuck in my mind. He reminded us, he said, he often thinks that he wishes he had even more than he did the power he had when he had it. In other words, he was saying, uh, take advantage of this incredible, accidental power that you have. Do you ever think about that? Yeah, I do. And, you know, all majorities are fleeting. And um, depending upon what the American people decide this November, uh, I could be the minority leader next year. And the majority leader position does present a real opportunity, even in a body like the Senate, which is very difficult to make function, there are advantages to setting the agenda and what we call the right of first recognition to move the country in the direction you'd like to go. And so you just don't know how long that's going to last, and you don't want to miss any opportunity to try to make the country better. And you have to deal with the government that you have. 
I wish Obama was not president, but he is. <laughs> we have about three or four minutes left. I want to give you a chance to answer a question I get asked. That speech I made that Senator Kennedy got the 20 co-sponsors for was about uh, encouraging uh, um, the teaching of American history in our schools so our children could grow up learning what it means to be an American. And I take those teachers when they come on the Senate floor early in the day when a senator can do that, and they go to the various desks. They try to find Webster's desk and different desks. And invariably, one will ask me the question I want to ask you, which is my last question. They say, Senator, what message would you like for us to take back to our students about the United States Senate and the future of our country? Well, I think the Senate has been the indispensable legislative body um, because that's the place where things are sorted out, the place where only rarely does the majority get things exactly their own way, the place where stability can occur. And um, most people obviously don't think that. And in, in, a, in an era in which everybody wants instant gratification, if you're looking for instant gratification or perfection, the Senate would not be a good place for you. And at a time when many Americans are not optimistic about our country's future, what would you want those teachers to tell their students about their future in this country? Well, look, I think because of our woeful ignorance of American history, we always think the current period we're in is tougher than others. We've had nothing like the Civil War period. We haven't had a single instance where a congressman from South Carolina came over and almost beat to death a senator from Massachusetts. <laughs> America's had plenty of tough challenges, world wars, depressions. This is a great country. you know. We're going to deal with whatever our current problems are and move on to another level. And I'm just as optimistic as I ever was that this generation is going to leave behind a better America than our parents left behind for us. Well, that's an optimistic message from a, a kid who had polio, overcame it, uh, set his sights to be in the United States Senate, made it, and became the majority leader after about 50 years of keeping his eye on the ball. Chet Atkins, the Nashville guitarist used to say, in this life, you have to be mighty careful where you aim because you're likely to get there. And Senator Mitch McConnell did. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you, Lauren.